All right, you're going to need a Bible tonight. So I hope you brought one or you can find one on the seat underneath you or in front of you. There's some notes at the front. I don't know if there's any left in the back, but there are some up at the front if you need some notes. Let me say two things just by way of introduction and disclaimer. Number one, in this series, we're talking about spiritual disciplines. Not all spiritual disciplines are created equal. And what I mean by that is they're not all equally important to your spiritual growth. And so when we started, we spent two weeks on the spiritual discipline of Bible intake. And that's the only one that we covered over a two-week period rather than a one-week period. And that was intentional to say to you, Bible intake, when you think about spiritual disciplines, is primary and foundational. And if you miss that one, everything else is a total waste. Everything else. So that has to be primary. It's most important. It's the one you can afford to leave out. And then we talked about prayer. And prayer would be a close second behind Bible intake because prayer is where not just you go to get things from God, but you go to grow in relationship with God. That's where you actually experience relationship with Him and talking to Him. So then we've talked about some other things. And the ones we're going to talk about tonight, you see on the heading, are fasting and solitude. They are important, but they're not as important as Bible intake and prayer. And they're not even as important as some of the ones that we're going to talk about in future weeks. And so my guess is, I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands, but my guess is a lot of you have never fasted. And I'm guessing that most of you can probably count on one hand and really on a couple of fingers the number of sermons or lessons you've heard on fasting. It's just not something we talk a whole lot about. So that leads me to my second disclaimer. My second disclaimer is anytime you approach the Bible, you need to understand that you approach the Bible from a culture. Now, it's easy for us as Americans to look at other countries and to see their culture. It's really hard to recognize your own culture. It's kind of like the fish in water, right? He doesn't know he's in water. He's just, he is. And you're in water. You're in a culture. And you approach the Bible and everything the Bible says with a specific worldview and a specific culture and certain understandings that not everyone else on the, on the planet shares. And so at the beginning, before we jump in, I just want to help you think about your culture a little bit, okay? So in what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. I'm not trying to shame anybody. I'm not talking about anyone specifically. I'm just talking about our culture, about some undeniable realities living in the United States of America that you just need to be aware of before we start talking about the spiritual discipline of fasting and solitude. So let me start with a few numbers. We have abundant food in this country, and I just want you to think about some of these numbers. In the world, we waste 1.3 billion tons of food every year. It's a mind-boggling amount of food that we waste on the earth. How do they estimate that number? I have absolutely no idea. Is it remotely accurate? I don't know, but I've read it a couple of places. And the point is, we waste a ton of food, which is hard to fathom when you think about there are people on the earth who are hungry and don't have food, and we waste this much uh, every year. In the United States alone, conservative estimates are that we waste 30 to 40 percent of our food supply. 
So I have personally worked in two restaurants and a grocery store. And I'm promising you, I'm telling you, we waste a ton of food. Uh, at the grocery store I used to work at, it was called Russell Central Foods. And it's not open anymore, and Russell doesn't own it anymore. So I can tell you this. We used to go back out behind Russell's, and it was uh, way downtown Amarillo. And there was a dumpster about 20 yards away from the back door. And we would play a game with the food we threw away. We would basically play basketball from 20 yards away with the dumpster of the rotten milk or the rotten eggs or the whatever. And I'm just telling you, there was a ton to throw away that the store purchased it expired, it went bad, and you just have to throw it away. And the exact same thing is true in restaurants. Both of the restaurants I worked in, I was the low man on the totem pole, which meant I did a lot of dish cleaning and table cleaning and bussing of tables and all that stuff. And just pay attention the next time you're out to eat. Just be nosy and look around at the people around you or maybe the people with you. And just look at the amount of food that we throw away. Again, I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip. Nothing I'm saying tonight is intended to make you feel guilty. If you leave feeling guilty, that's your fault. I just want you thinking about the culture we live in and some of the realities that shape the way we think about fasting. 68.8% of American adults are overweight or obese. The reality is we live in a place where food is abundant. And more than likely, none of us have ever really, truly worried where our next meal was coming from. You have probably never had the experience of going to the grocery store and wondering whether or not they would have food at the grocery store. That's an experience in some places in the world. Like going to the store is not a guarantee that there's going to be something there for you to eat. There's plenty of people. We, we work with some of these people on our mission trips that don't even know where their very next meal is going to come from, much less if they're going to get one at all. And that's just not our experience in this country. So I know that's kind of heavy to just throw that on you right out of the gate. So I'm going to try to lighten it with a little movie clip. How many of you guys have seen the movie Wally? Have you seen Wally? Okay, so turn Wally on and let's just look at Wally. And the producers are talking about uh, what the future might be like. And they're looking at our culture. And they're projecting into the future, thinking about what we might be like in some future existence. Wow. Make a place grief. It doesn't sound Look, I'm tired of it. If you can't fold the straw, it's not yet any good. But, over here. Whoa. You get the idea. 
the clip goes on and it shows some more. Will our future ever be quite that bad? I, I don't know. You don't know. But you understand what they're saying about human culture. We're addicted to screens. We want things to be as easy as possible. We just, you know, right there on the armrest, you can control everything. And we just eat and eat and eat. And they show more uh, in this clip about they eat all their meals in these uh, big giant Slurpees. And you just get them all day long every day. And they're just making commentary to say, we currently have a problem with food. And in the future, that may or may not get better. And, and they're guessing no. When you watch something like this and you watch the rest of the clip, it probably makes you a little bit uneasy. And the reason it strikes home is because there is a little bit of truth in it. And you can see it, maybe in yourself or in our culture and our society. You've maybe never thought about this, but I promise you, the unease you feel when you watch that and you think, oh, wow, that would be so strange, is the same sort of feeling that people from, say, Southeast Asia or, say, people from Sub-Saharan Africa feel when they come to the United States for the very first time and they walk into a grocery store and there's 8,000 types of bread on the bread aisle and there's 400 boxes of cereal on the cereal aisle and there's all of these choices and all of this variety and it's so abundant and it's so relatively cheap. It's just totally overwhelming to them. And so that same feeling uh, has been experienced by people, not just you when you watch this video. Now, to be an equal opportunity offender, our problem with food is not just with people who have tight belts. It's also with people who are totally fanatical and obsessed with diets and supplements and the latest this and the latest that. And I'm not knocking any of those things. I'm not trying to say health is a bad thing any more than I'm trying to lay a guilt trip on you for having a tight belt. I'm just saying, I hope in our culture you can see the two extremes that we kind of swing between. On the one hand, we have so many people who clearly struggle with the issue of food. And on the other hand, we have so many people who are totally obsessed and spend an absolute fortune on having the right physique or the right diet or the right whatever. And you just need to know, you live in a culture where one group of us sort of just totally ignores health and food and eating. And the other group of us, or another group of us, is totally obsessed about it and never stops thinking about it. And when I start to talk to you or myself about a spiritual discipline that involves food, you come at that discipline with that culture just around you. And you just got to be aware of that. Now, we haven't even talked about solitude, so I'll just try to be brief here. Um, we're the most connected people ever. We are so, so connected. And it's entirely possible if you think about a typical day in your life that you never are unconnected from something. Or if you are, it's very brief amounts of time. So I just, I'll, I'll tell on myself and I'll be honest, okay? Wake up in the morning and this is what wakes me up. Not an alarm clock, it's my phone. So the very first thing I do in the morning is I roll over and I pick this up. And immediately when I'm turning, whether I'm turning off the alarm or I'm hitting snooze for nine minutes, you immediately are connected. And we've talked before on Wednesday nights about how many people, American adults, the very first thing they do before they ever get out of bed in the morning is pull this thing up, turn the alarm off, and open up Facebook. And right from the get-go, you're connected. 
I got, to, I got all these emails in the middle of the night. I got to look at my emails. Or I got text messages or Facebook messages in the night. All of a sudden, you're connected. Some of you, it's maybe not a cell phone, but you wake up and it's you turn the news on right away. The screen is on. The TV screen is on. You drive to work. You've got a radio in your car. Maybe you listen to podcasts on the way or audio books, but there's probably something going as you're driving most of the time. You go to a restaurant or a store. They have music being played. It's not just quiet. In fact, if you ever go to a restaurant or a grocery store and there's nothing being played, it kind of creeps you out because you're so used to just being inundated all day long, all the time. And if you go to a restaurant these days that doesn't have a TV, you don't know where to look. Like, what am I, am I supposed to just look at the person across the table from me? What in the world? I guess I'll just get my phone out and look at that. We just, we struggle. Look at people in restaurants. They struggle to put their phone down. You go home, you turn the TV on, we have cable, we have Netflix, we have all of these things. We're just constantly connected. And then you go to bed at night, and you can't go to bed until you check everybody's status update. What they do today, what are they talking about today? You get that last fix, and then you put it down, and you go to sleep. Wake up in the morning, here you go again. When it comes to solitude and just being alone and quiet, most of us find that very, very difficult because of the amount of media that we're inundated with. So we're going to try to think about these disciplines, and I'm going to say it one last time. And nothing that we talk about tonight is the goal to make you feel guilty. That's not the goal. The goal is to make you think. And to think about what role should these disciplines play in my life. Not to leave with a set of rules, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this. But just to think through some of these things. So what are the spiritual disciplines of fasting and solitude? Fasting is voluntarily abstaining from food to seek God. In the Bible, when it talks about fasting, the issue is food. It's not fasting from Netflix. It's not, I'm fasting from M&M's for a month. It's not, I'm fasting from this or that or I'm giving up coffee for a month. The issue of fasting really does center around food. And we'll look up just a couple of examples of this. Look at Ezra chapter 10. Ezra 10. If you find the book of Psalms, just go left a few pages. You'll find Ezra 10. Verse 6 says, Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. Okay, this is a fast, and it's an overnight fast, and he is abstaining from food and drink for a night. Food and drink is the focus here. Flip over and just a few pages and look at Esther chapter 4. Esther 4. Verse 16, Esther says to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. So now we're talking about three days. And I and my young women also will fast as you do. Then I'll go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So food and drink is the issue. You see the same thing uh, in the New Testament. We'll look at just a couple of more. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 
This, is, this falls under the category of one of the things Dr. Whitney mentioned in the video. Matthew 3, verse 4, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. John was a weird guy, but he wasn't so weird that he liked locusts. That was just a type of fast. I'm not going to eat what I would normally eat, and instead I'm going to eat this. And that was just an ongoing thing in his life. If you flip the page and you look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, you read, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus, that's he, Jesus was hungry. And this is what, uh, what Dr. Whitney calls in one of his books a supernatural fast. Like if you fast 40 days and 40 nights, you die. Moses did it on the mountain, and God sustained him in a miraculous way. Jesus did it here, and he was sustained in a miraculous day. But again, you see the issue is food. Now, let me add this to it. This is the next bullet point. Fasting can also be voluntarily abstaining from other good things to seek God. So when we bring this up, you may think about your Catholic friends or your high church friends who observe Lent. And Lent rolls around, and they, uh, they want to give something up for Lent for this period of time. And maybe they're going to give up TV, or maybe they're going to give up chocolate, or maybe they're going to give up Diet Coke, or maybe they're going to give up whatever. Okay? That's really not something we do a lot or talk a lot about as Baptists. Nothing unbiblical about that. Perfectly fine to do that. It's certainly a problem. We'll get into this if the reason you give something up for Lent is so that you can have a Facebook post saying, this is what I'm giving up for Lent. And you're sort of boasting about it and parading that in front of everybody. But certainly nothing wrong with saying, look, for this period of time, whether it's Lent or any other period of time, I'm going to give something up and I'm going to use that giving it up or that time devoted to that thing to focus on God. Um, some scholars get uncomfortable when you open this idea of fasting up to things other, uh, other than food. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about husbands and wives. And he talks about them abstaining from physical relations, abstaining from sex, so that they can devote themselves to prayer. That's the idea behind fasting. We're going to take a good thing, something that God's given to us, blessed us with. We're going to give it up for a time. For a purpose, and that purpose in 1 Corinthians 7 is to seek God through prayer. Let's talk about solitude. Solitude is like fasting from people in distraction. And some of you like the idea of fasting from people. You think, hey, that sounds all right. It's abstaining from fellowship, speaking, noise, and media so that you can seek God. We're going to look some scriptures up on that as we continue here. Let's talk about how you do it. How do you practice these disciplines? Fasting can be done publicly or privately, individually or corporately. So it's not just one way to do it. It can be a personal private thing or it can be a public thing that people know about. Not all public fasts are wrong. There's examples of public fasts in the Bible where people knew that others were fasting. It can be done as an individual or it can be done by a group of people. So let's look at an example of each after you fill those in. Look at Second Chronicles. This is in the Old Testament before the book of Psalms. Second Chronicles chapter 20. And you look at verse 3. This would be an example of a public 
corporate fast, meaning people knew about it. It wasn't a secret. It wasn't private. And it was a group of people doing it together. Second Chronicles 20, verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord. That's probably the most important phrase in this particular verse about fasting. Okay? Don't focus on the fast. Focus on the fact that he's doing this to seek the Lord. He was afraid. He set his face to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. So he proclaims it publicly, and he's calling all of these people to do it together. That's a public corporate fast. Now flip to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. We'll look at an example of personal private fasting. Matthew 6. Jesus says, when you fast... We'll come back to that idea later. Not if you fast, but when you fast. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So these are the people that they fast and they walk around disfiguring your face. That may seem kind of weird to us. Maybe in our culture, like a paraphrase would be, they're the ones who fast and they sigh all day long so that you say, oh, what's wrong? Oh, I'm fasting today. Okay, they want other people to know about it. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, they've, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus, at least one of the kinds of fasting he's encouraging us to think about is something that's just personal, You're not doing it with a group of people. It's just you. And you're not telling anybody about it. It's a private thing. Nobody needs to know about that. Fasting should never be done for praise or attention. That flows out of what we just read. And it should never be done to get things from God. This is where I go back to the verse about Jehoshaphat. That the point of his fast was to seek God. It's not necessarily to get something from God or to manipulate God. But it was just to seek God. Not done for praise or attention. Not done simply to get things from God. So the Pharisees are an obvious example to say, look, they only did it to display their spirituality to other people. And if that's why you're fasting, it's entirely the wrong reason. Nothing wrong with a public fast. Nothing wrong with the church fasting together. But there's certainly a problem if your motive is just so that other people would look up to you spiritually because you're fasting. The other part of that is the idea that we don't fast to manipulate God. So a historical figure that you may think of when you think about fasting is somebody like Gandhi. And throughout his life, Gandhi would go on hunger strikes. And he would be protesting Uh, different things and objecting to different things and trying to make political change happen and he would just sort of say you know publicly okay I'm not going to eat again until this changes and um, the goal in that is to manipulate people and he thought it was for a good reason for you know to make positive social changes and uh, to put pressure on leaders to do what he thought was the right thing in your approach to fasting you can't think of it like Gandhi don't think of your fasting like a hunger strike. Like I'm trying to get God's attention or I'm trying to back God into a corner or I'm trying to get God to do things my way or see things my way. But the point in fasting 
is that in that physical reminder of hunger, you're driven to seek God and to seek His will and to draw closer to Him. Solitude. Solitude should be a regular practice and an occasional practice. A regular practice and an occasional practice. By regular, I mean that in your life you should have some built-in times where you're not connected. Where you're not intaking media and noise and sound. You should have some built-in times. And maybe some of you have that. And maybe some of you say, like, there's not a five-minute span in the day where I'm not connected somehow to someone through a phone or through a computer or through a television screen or through a radio. But you ought to have a regular time in your life. I'm not telling you it needs to be five minutes or 30 minutes or an hour or whatever. But there should be a regular time where you're just not connected, where you're just alone with you and God. And it should be occasional. Meaning, into our lives, God has built this weekly thing called Sabbath, or what we would in the, in the New Covenant call the Lord's Day, where we stop what we're normally doing. We have this rhythm to life where we work for a period and then we break. And the same thing, I think, should be true when it comes to, to solitude. Let me give you a disclaimer here. Solitude has to be more than rest and leisure. Okay? You can take a few days vacation and you can go off somewhere and you can say, well, I'm going to practice the spiritual discipline of solitude. But unless you're seeking God in that, it's not the spiritual discipline of solitude. It's rest and leisure. You can say, well, I'm going, I'm getting away from everybody. I'm putting my phone away in the glove box and I'm going to go play 18 holes. Spiritual discipline of solitude. Pastor said I needed to do it. I don't begrudge you going to play 18 holes or going fishing or going to do whatever it is that you want to do. Leisure is a good thing and it should be part of your life. But you don't get to call it the spiritual discipline of solitude just because you're going to have fun at something and that happens to be alone by yourself. The spiritual discipline of solitude is focused. It has a goal and the goal is seeking God, not simply rest and not simply leisure. One last point on how to do it before we get to the why in some more scriptures. If these disciplines are unfamiliar to you, I think you should start small. Small. So if you say, okay, I've never fasted and I see it in the Bible and we're about to look at some more scriptures and you say, I want to do this, I need to to work this into my life. Don't start off with like, I'm going to go for a 30-day fast. Bad idea. Why don't you just start with like a meal? Or an afternoon. Or I'm not going to have an afternoon snack. I'm going to fast from that. Or you know what I'm saying? Start small. Don't just jump into something crazy. And I think the same thing is true with solitude. If that's something you struggle with, you probably don't need to start with, well, I'm going to a cabin in the woods for a month and I'll be back. Because you're going to get out there and you're going to go crazy because you're not connected to anyone or anything and you're used to that. So start small and be realistic in it. Why should we do these things? Let me give you a few thoughts about why, why they are important. Even though they're not the most important, they are important. Number one, Jesus practiced these disciplines, and he did assume that we would practice them as well. Jesus did these things, and he assumed that we would do them as well. So we've already read Matthew 4. Right before Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he fasts for 40 days. 
We've already read Matthew 6 where Jesus doesn't say if you fast, but he says when you fast. Look at a few more verses in the Gospels. Look at Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9 verse 14 says, Then the disciples of John came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. The patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither do you put new wine into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins so both are preserved. And the point of what Jesus is saying is, look, it's just kind of silly to put the wrong kind of patch on a garment. And it's just kind of silly to put the wrong kind of wine in the wrong kind of wine skin. And it would just be kind of silly for these guys to fast when I'm here with them. Like, what would they be fasting about? I'm right here. They don't need to seek me. I'm here. You know, I'm with them. But the day's coming when I'm going to be gone. And then they're going to fast. Why? Not to manipulate me, but to seek me and to try to draw closer to me. He assumed that they would do it. Flip over to Matthew chapter 14, verse 23. It says, after he, Jesus, had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. That's the spiritual discipline of solitude, combined with prayer. But you understand, Jesus could have prayed anywhere. And he thought it was important to get away and to be alone to do this. And it's not the only time you read that in the Gospels. Keep reading, or keep flipping over to the right and look at Mark chapter 1. Mark 1 verse 35 says, Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed, that's Jesus, and he went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. He could have just rose early, everyone else was still asleep, he could have got down beside his bed or on his knees out wherever he was and he could have prayed there, but he understood the importance of being alone, of removing potential distractions. And for Jesus, those distractions weren't a cell phone and a TV screen and stuff like that, but they were just people being around him. And so he says, I'm going I'm to go out to this des- desolate place. Flip over and look at Mark 6. We'll just look at one more. Mark 6, verse 30. says, The apostles returned to Jesus. They told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat, again the same word, to a desolate place by themselves. And so throughout the Gospels you see Jesus doing this, getting away, being away from people, so that he can focus on his mission and focus on the Father's will. You understand this is something you see throughout the Bible, that God uses periods of time in people's lives where they're separated from the normal, when they're sort of all alone to prepare them for something else. So you can think just some examples. Think about Moses, right? He flees Egypt and he runs out to the wilderness. And how many nights does he spend in Midian all alone as a shepherd out there with the sheep? Just alone. 
Yes, there's sheep around, but they're not quite the same distraction as people. He's alone. You think about the same thing with King David, right? Before he ever made him king, before he ever fought Goliath, before he ever led an army into battle or did any of those great things or any of the knucklehead things that he did, he spent a lot of nights alone in solitude. Just him and the sheep and the stars being alone. You can think about Elijah, the prophet. You can read about his story in Kings And he just kind of gets to a point in his life where he's burned out and he's tired. And God basically says, I'm just going to put you in this cave and leave you here all alone for a little while. I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to feed you. And there's some fasting involved there and there's certain kinds of eating involved. And he just says, you're just going to be alone. And that's solitude. You can think about the Apostle Paul. You may not have ever put this timeline together. But after Paul has his experience on the Damascus Road... And he's healed, and he's converted, and he's following Jesus. He doesn't just go and start preaching immediately. The book of Galatians says he goes into Arabia, and he spends months, years, just alone. Studying, praying, learning, spending time with God. Before he ever goes and he does anything for God, he just spends some time all alone. And so you see this theme throughout the scriptures. Next, why should you do it? Fasting and solitude can help you discover God's will. And I put this one on here with fear and trembling, but I think it is important. So look at Ezra chapter 8. Ezra 8. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Ezra's getting ready to lead a whole bunch of exiles back to Jerusalem. And he's already popped off and he told the king how great God was and God protects his people and God, you know, he shepherds his people and he looks out for his people. God's the best. Talking to this pagan king. And the pagan king says, well, why don't you go back? Sounds like a great plan. Ezra gets ready to go back. He looks around at all the people he's going with and he's got a whole lot of money in his pockets to rebuild and to do things in Jerusalem. And he says, I'm with a bunch of ragtag goobers. And if we get attacked on the way, we got a real problem because we're not going to fight anybody off. But I can't go ask the king for an armed guard because I just told him God takes care of his people. What's he going to think if I go say God can't take care of us? So he's kind of in a rock and a hard place. In Ezra chapter 8, verse, let's see, where do we want to start? Look at verse 21. I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him. A safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. And you look at that and you say, man, it looks like he wants something from God. Didn't you say fasting wasn't to get something from God? But the first part says we proclaim the fast to humble ourselves before God. Not just to bull right in and say we need this, we need this, we need this. We're going to humble ourselves before God and we're going to seek this safe journey. He says in verse 22, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we just told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored God for this and he listened to our entreaty. They're trying to figure out God's will. It's not just Ezra that does it. It's even Jesus who does this. Flip over to the Gospels and let's look at Luke chapter 6. Luke 6. If you look at verse 12, 
and your Bible has headings, the heading right above verse 12 probably says the 12 apostles because this is the paragraph that describes Jesus naming the 12 apostles. Look what he did before he chose the 12. Luke 6, 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And then when the day came, he called the disciples and he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So fasting and solitude is one way that you can seek God's will. You see the same thing in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14 talks about Paul on a missionary journey. And he says, look, we needed to appoint elders in these new churches. So we fasted and we prayed and then we appointed the elders. We had something important to do. We wanted to make the right decision. So we sought God first. And then we made a decision. Here's the caution. You cannot, cannot just go off on your own and say, okay, it's time for fasting and solitude. And just go off on your own without your Bible and think that if you're quiet enough, long enough, and you don't check Facebook long enough, that maybe God's just going to sort of speak some word down to you. Because probably what's going to happen if you do that is it's just going to be your own brain or your own stomach talking to you. Like you can't trust, oh, I just think that this is what God told me. I know that God can lead people and he can guide people and he can impress things on your heart. But when people move over into the realm of saying, well, God just told me X, Y, Z and these detailed plans and they lay it all out. I think, eh, yeah, I don't know. I think he speaks to you through his word. And I think if you practice the spiritual discipline of solitude to seek his will and you separate that from listening to his word and what he says to you clearly in his word, I think you've gone off base and I think it's a dangerous, dangerous thing. So be careful about that. The voices in your head might just be you, may not always be God, so be careful. Fasting is connected to repentance, humility, and concern for God's people. And I'm going to let you look these verses up. 1 Samuel 7 talks about Samuel leading the prayer in a, a fast where they're confessing their sins. And the same thing's true in Nehemiah and Daniel. Uh, fasting is often connected with repentance and humility. We saw that even in Ezra. We proclaimed a fast and we humbled ourselves before God. And then we asked him for something. Fasting and solitude can be acts of worship. Acts of worship. And I like Luke 2, so let's look at Luke 2.37. This puts a, an interesting spin on solitude. Luke 2.37. We'll back up to verse 36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin... And then as a widow until she was 84. So you can do the math on that. She was married for a little while and she lived as a widow for an awful long time. And this is how she chose. It's not that everyone needs to do this, but this is how she chose to live as a widow. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So this is a woman who sort of experienced a unique kind of solitude. Like I'm going to detach from normal life with sort of normal goings-on, and I'm going to spend it here at the temple, and I'm going to devote myself to fasting and prayer, and that was an act of worship for her. Last idea is this. 
solitude can help you gain control over your tongue. And the book of James and the book of Proverbs have some really great warnings about controlling your tongue. And most of us are often too quick to speak. And spending time in solitude not speaking is just good practice for some of us as you think about your spiritual growth. So we're short on time. I'm going to let you look up those verses. But there's a few thoughts on fasting and solitude.